This is Raw Cut. This is Life Burst. I'm Matt. And I'm Sarah. Today, a story from Bangladesh to Australia. I'm really looking forward to this one. Yes, this is Life Burst. Thanks for joining us today. However, you might be listening to us podcast, video podcast on TV, radio. It's great that you could be with us. And today we are chatting with Montez. Thank you, Montez, for joining us. Hi, great. It's good to be uh, on, on air with you. Yeah. yeah, always good. We love hearing people's stories. And so uh, you have a great story to share. So Montez, can you uh, take us back to the beginning of your life? Where did life start out for you? Oh, sure, sure. Well, a well, long, long way back, but it feels like a long way from where I am just now and, and far away. So back in 1973, I was born into um, a, a Muslim family and in a, in a rural environment. Uh, I think if, I, if, I, if, if, if my memory serves me correctly from stories I've heard, I was born uh, on the kitchen floor around the fire. Uh, in August uh, 1973, on the 10th, as it so happens. There you yes. go. Well, there's a story. Right. There is a story. <laughs> there is. There must be more of a story to that. So, yeah. So, and from there, I mean, obviously, I, I don't have much of a recollection of, of my very early years. Uh, but I have some memories, and it's bizarrely remain with me, particularly... Uh, I used to enjoy fishing, and, and not just fishing for sport, but for food. So we would have most houses in the village, and this is quite typical of Bangladesh, I think even now, would have a, a gigantic pond or like a mini lake, or however you want to describe it, and that would serve the community. And back when I was born, you would bathe in that, you would wash. I learned to swim in that. Uh, holding the uh, the trunk of a, of a banana tree, banana plant. Once you take the bananas off, uh, you can chop it down because they regrow, and then they're, they're, they're very buoyant, and so you, you use it like a flog, you hold on to it and swim. So I learned to swim in that pond. Uh, like I said, we bathed in there. Uh, I fished in there, and we drank the water. Seriously, we did all of that. Not all at the same time obviously, <laughs> but, but we did all that. So that's some of my early memories of catching fish and um, I'd, I'd, I'd hook them all. I'd string them along on a bit of a, a twig. Uh, as I caught each one, I'd put the twig through its gills and I'd, I'd roll, the, you know, I'd have it stacked up in a row. And then when I had enough, uh, got enough, I'd take them home and my mum would fry them up in the uh, on, a, on, a, on a pan and look at a fresh uh, fish and rice. I incidentally, I still eat fish and rice. I've just had it for lunch today, salmon and rice, as it so happens. So that's some of my early memories. Uh, school, uh, school was uh, optional in Bangladesh in my time. Mm -hmm. And so I think I started school not that early. But even when I, when I did go, it was sporadic from my memories for whatever reason. And I don't think I was very good at it. I do remember one of my earliest memories Hey, tell me if I'm going on too long. No, go for but it. No, go as much as you want. Oh, okay. One of my earliest memories of school, uh, apart from showing off to the girls, I can't believe even back then, back then, like I do it now, no, but back then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
he'd be like, we'd be taking our tops off to jump off things uh, to just be showing off. I, I remember that for some reason. But, but the big uh, thing I remember is we were at school one day and this peculiar looking fella turned up, an elderly gentleman. He had, he had a stick. He's crouched over, but he had this weirdest looking skin, just like you two, you two. Really, it was bizarre to us. We'd never seen it before. It, it was kind of like white. It's just bizarre. We'd never seen anyone with skin that colour. And so we were really taken up by this and went up to him and we wanted to touch him uh, and just to make sure he's real. You know, is he a human? You know, you know are there people like him? Are there more of them? <laughs> and so that was my early encounter with... Uh, uh, with um, with with a westerner with a white westerner right all right were there other siblings that you had as well montez yes yeah, so there so initially there were four of us i'm i'm the eldest mm -hmm. uh so uh i think there were three of us before we emigrated to the uk and then a fourth there uh and then four more so so i'm i'm the first born amongst eight Wow, you're the pioneer, I, but, right? <laughs> you're the, the... Yeah, no, yeah, which carries a lot of responsibility. Yeah. In um, I, I use the term Asian. I know here in Australia, Asian. The term Asian is generally referenced to people from uh, China uh, or, re or or regions in, uh, similar to that. Uh, back in the UK, we tend to use that term Asian for people more of my my ethnicity, places like India or Bangladesh, Pakistan, and so forth. Um, and how, how did I get onto that? Uh, uh, this is what happens when you, with each year that passes, you start a sentence and you forget why you've started that sentence. We were asking about your siblings. Mm. Yes, of course. Yes, yeah, so, so there's uh, yeah, eight of us in total, uh, all the way down to, I think my youngest, I'm 48. There you go. And I think my youngest is mid-20s, youngest sibling. Okay. That's a difference. Yeah. So oh, I mean, I think that's bizarre. Uh, sorry. Uh, one of the bizarre things I encountered when I visited Bangladesh when I was uh, 18, 19, I went back there for my, my family wanted to reintroduce me to my Eastern culture, having been brought up in the UK in a Western culture, is I met, I met an uncle there who was about six years old and my, and my granddad was in his 90s. So... <laughs> So that, you know, he'd give Abraham a run for his money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you uh, you had those early years. How many years were you in Bangladesh to begin with? I think just four. Right. I, I think four to five. And so I was very young. I remember the uh, the day we were leaving. Obviously, our family were families, extended family, very sad. Uh, I had to go and have my injections. I remember that. I remember us driving to the airport. Uh, it seemed a long, long way. Um, and beyond that, I just remember landing at Heathrow Airport. That's the main airport in the UK on a on a very cold day. I'd arrived in T-shirts and a pair of shorts on a winter's day in the UK at a Heathrow Airport. And it was freezing. Yeah. And to make matters worse, my father had gotten the dates mixed up. He runs in the family, you see, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> my father had gotten the dates mixed up and he wasn't waiting for us. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, okay, there's an adventure there. 
Oh, it was, seriously. Okay, so you landed in Heathrow and the dates were mixed up. So what did you do next? Yeah, well, I, all I can recall was I was cold. That's all I remember. Yeah. I can't remember my, my siblings, but there must have been at least another one, two. My mom, I don't know how, because I think it was her first time, she managed to get someone to give her a coin because there was the good old days when you wanted to make a phone call, you had to go to a phone box. So she managed to get a coin of somebody. She must have had his number, I'm assuming, naturally. And uh, she called my father and some... Heathrow is about two to three hours away from where we live, which is a long way in the UK. Uh, and so he eventually came for us. Uh, I, I remember the taxi drive. And my first memory when I got to a place called Wensbury in the West Midlands, that's near Birmingham, UK, is I, I made a beeline for what was a, a fire, uh, a gas fire. Again, that was new to me, but it obviously this was, thing was radiating heat. And I just stood in front of it for what seemed like hours. <laughs> and I do that still, still today. If I go to somebody's house and there's a fire log burner or something going here in Oz, I, I make a beeline for it and I just stand in front of it. Wow, that's the memories going back uh, back a long way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you were saying that your dad was already here in, mm. oh, well, sorry, in the UK. He was already in the UK. How did that come That's about? So it was typical for people living in Bangladesh, and I think it still is the case, in in trying to uh, to, to to move elsewhere for you know a better uh, a better living. Mm-hmm. And and he'd moved to the UK several years earlier before I was born. Um, I mean, soon after the war, when there was a, a high demand for a labour force, my father moved over there. He was a crane driver, mm-hmm. and so I think it took some years for his for his status to change and for us to be able to join him. So he was already the, already there in the West Midlands. He'd bought a place and he had a job, and so he had all the infrastructure set up to welcome us to the UK. Oh, that's lovely. Well, we will continue to hear Montaz's story straight after this. This is Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review of this podcast on your podcasting app, or you can share this on social media. Thanks for joining us on Life Burst. We're chatting to Montez today. Montez, you've moved as a youngster from Bangladesh to the UK. How did life unfold for you, uh, apart from just the impact of the cold immediately that you remember? Uh, how was life suddenly different and how did you cope as a young youngster? Yeah, Matt, um, it, it was radically different. Uh, yeah, the cold. Uh, television was interesting because we got to see television uh, back in Bangladesh. Um, if you wanted to watch TV, it would be a whole village event where oh. there's something particularly interesting going on and the village would hire a television from the local city. You'd bring it, it to get transported on a rickshaw to the village, set up, and all the surrounding little villages all, all gather around this one TV in the middle of this rural environment. It's, uh, that's how we watch TV. So I'd only seen it once, possibly twice, how big uh, was that TV? Life. How big? How big was that TV? Oh, and I don't think it was that big, sir. <laughs> okay. Know? Yeah. Seriously. Uh, anyhow, you got to, you know, so you could barely see the thing. Uh, so that was my experience of TV. But now, when I got to this house with the fireplace next to the fire, was our own personal TV. <laughs> it was great. And uh, and my folks had a habit 
in the afternoons of going to sleep uh, just on the sofa. And so uh, and I'll be left, you know, to watch whatever I want. And I used to love, it was the old fashioned TVs where you had to press the buttons mm-hmm. in really hard to get, uh, I think, BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. It was just two or three channels. And I used to love playing with them when they were asleep. And once uh, I, I was doing it so rapidly, something happened to the TV. And all of a sudden, the movie had a black line on the top and a black line on the bottom. It's obviously widescreen. But I, I, was, I thought I'd broken it. I was panicking. You know, I want to get in trouble for breaking the TV. Uh, that's an early memory of TV. Uh, I enjoy. I remember watching Princess Diana's Wedding. Oh, that's okay. a memory I have of, of watching TV too, in black and white. Our TV was black and white. Okay, uh, so so that's how life began. Uh, I was uh, I went to a local school. It, it happened to be a Catholic school, just because it was the one. Uh, within reach of where we lived, our catchment area. So I remember singing some Christian songs, which is which was bizarre for someone from an Islamic background, but that's some early memories. I remember it's on top of a hill, and I remember the language issue. I mean, really, I had a culture shock when I come to Australia and discovered they speak a different language. But going to England from Bangladesh, uh, you know, is even more stark, the, 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 the difference. And so I didn't speak a word of English. And I was thrown into a, a school at the age of five. I think I was five. And that was a big deal, just trying to learn English, let alone anything else. Wow. So you that's a huge learning curve to, to be in a different culture, a different climate. Uh, you had the perks like the TV, but uh, eventually you uh, you found your way. You, you've, you've learned some English. Uh, how did, how was school for you? Was it something you loved after that, or uh, did it was it a challenge? Yeah, again, I think Matt up to the age of eight, because when things changed for me, and I'll share a little about that shortly. And um, I don't have any further recollection of school. Believe it or not, it's bizarre. Um, I mean, I've gone through a big changes as a youngster, and I, I think uh, large sections of my memory have just blanked out because I don't have any more memory other than. Uh, we went to the fair once, the fair, that's when the local, uh, uh, the, the, some rides. I mean, I don't know, what we, is that what we call them in Australia? When, for example, you'd have them at Semaphore when there'd be all these rides and they come there in the summer. What do you call that? Yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. that'll work. The fair, yeah. Yeah. I remember <laughs> the fair coming. I went, I went on a ride there and I lost my shoes. That's an early memory. <laughs> but that's about it. Uh, mm. and, and, and and it's soon after that when I got to eight. Uh that things had a had a major things changed for me majorly. Okay, what happened? A birth yeah. of another sibling or something else? So no, so something um, incredibly dramatic. Um, so I remember just going to bed one evening, and uh, you know, just had a. It's about eight o'clock. We always used to eat late. Mm-hmm. Used to go to bed late. I remember when we come up with school, we never used to take off our school uniforms. We used to leave them on, <laughs> go to bed in them. <laughs> it sounds awful, doesn't it? And then go to school in them the next day. You don't have to get changed. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I'll do it now still. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I go to school. But, uh, <laughs> that's right, for church. <laughs> yeah, I never changed my Sunday clothes, you see. Uh, but, uh, yeah, when we woke up, things are, yeah, my, my my mother passed away during the night oh. and and so things changed for us dramatically 
the state took us in just the next day we uh, we were taken in by the state uh, and I remember traveling to the social services I can still remember that moment uh, we were there we were there for a few hours whilst they were just trying to organize uh, with my mother's passing my father was unable to look after us so the social services were involved in the UK mm -hmm. and by late afternoon that day the very next day to when I went to bed the previous night, late afternoon that day, we were dropped off in a children's home in West Bromwich in, in the Midlands, in the West Midlands. Um, and that was just major, major. I mean, within 24 hours, we were without a family in a brand new environment where there were a lot of children, youngsters, teenagers, some of them, who were from, who were from a very difficult family background, who were there because their families were struggling to look after them. And so we were just placed into that. There was myself, eight. There was a brother who was about five, one, another brother about three, and my sister who was just one. Wow. You know, so she was still in nappies and needing parental care. And I still remember she used to just be left for hours and end in her cot in one of the, the kids' rooms with very little interaction from anybody. Mm. That's huge for mm. uh, any mm. any child to have to go through. Mm. Uh, you, you had each other, but uh, dramatic changes as well as the, the shock and the grief that, uh, that you all would have had to work through as well. Um, I know children are yeah. fairly resilient, but what kind of effect did that have on you? Uh, looking back, obviously. Yeah. What, yeah. What, mm. Well, it was bizarre. I was the oldest, but it wasn't just that. But there was just this instinct that that took over, where I just felt responsible for my siblings, mm -hmm. um, and and I effectively parented them in that situation for the few months we were there, the best I could, because it was very difficult. Bullying was rife, and and back then in the UK, there were fewer people of my ethnicity, and so to be thrown into into this situation. Uh, so there was a lot of backlash. I remember bullying was a regular occurrence and we struggled to eat. Like you can imagine, uh, I mean, I have a Western palate now. I, I, eat, well, I can eat the food of many different uh, nations. But back then, I went from a completely Eastern diet the night before to a complete Western diet the following day. And back in the 80s, I mean, Eastern food wasn't that popular in the UK. And so I remember struggling to eat. And so I have memories of regularly being hungry. Uh, I remember I used to hide food down the side of the sofa that I was given that I couldn't eat. It's cheese sandwiches. <laughs> I can eat them now. But back then I just couldn't stomach cheese sandwiches. And I used to stop them down the sofa. But it just there was just regular hunger, constant hunger, uh, bullying, and uh, and and... Yeah, and I think we used to live for the visitation of relatives because they used to come every now and then and bring us Eastern food. Mm -hmm. uh, but but from, from my recollection, they weren't very regular for whatever reason. And that was some of the highlights. Wow. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that's... So everyone's story is so different and that's why we do life births. So thank you for... Montaz being so open and honest with all of us about this experience that you've had in your life. 
Yeah, you're welcome, Sarah. Yeah, there are some of the dark, difficult times. But there are some good times in the home too. Yes. By the grace of God, there's a lady called Christine. And I did try and follow her up some years later, but wasn't very successful. A lady called Christine, one of the carers, workers in the, in the, foster, in the, in the, uh, in the children's home, who took a liking to me. And uh, I'm sure it was, it was the grace of God uh, just working in me then. So she took a favour to me and would look, would, would look out for me. I remember she invited, used to take me to her, to her home at times, uh, which was just lovely. So, so that was a blessing. Yeah. Mm, I learned to ride a bike. So. Yeah, well, Montez, when yeah, we, really. we'll, we'll continue. Uh, great to hear um, that there were some positives in there as mm, well. As, that's right. And uh, it's helped to shape you who you are. So uh, when we come back here on Life Burst, we'll continue Montez's story. Stay tuned. Hey, did you know this show is available in video too? You can find it at rawcut.com.au. This is Life Burst with Matt and Sarah, and today we're chatting with Montez. Now, Montez, you got up to the part of your story where you're telling us about this lovely lady called Christine. Tell us more about her. So Christine, yeah, was one of the carers who uh, who worked at this children's home that we were in. She was just lovely, and as, like I say, for whatever reason, I kind of think it's a God thing, she took a real liking to me. She would give me treats, take me back to her house sometimes, which requires special authorization. I remember she had a boyfriend, an Indian boyfriend, as it so happens, who used to visit the home every now and then. And we all loved it when he came because she'd like to have some time along with him. So they always treat us. They leave the, the kids with some treat of some nature whilst they just have spent some time together. <laughs> that was just lovely. Mm. Um, I mean, some positive things. They had a trampoline. I used to love bouncing on that. Uh, I learned to ride a bicycle because there were lots of bicycles in a shed and, and none of the tyres were pumped up. But that made it easier to balance when you're learning. So here's a, tr- here's a trick, parents out there, that I discovered it's much easier to learn to balance on a, on a push bike with it when the tyres aren't inflated for whatever reason. Yeah. There we so go. I learned to ride a bike. Uh, I did plenty of what we call in the, in the UK scrumping. I don't know if you use that term. It's basically stealing people's fruits. Uh, so what we do, nope. we'd, 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 we'd walk, you know about that? No. Nope. Yeah, Educate we, us. We call it scrumping. And I didn't even realise it was wrong. So we'd, we'd walk along the streets and when we see some fruit in someone's garden, we'd jump over, steal as many as we could and jump back. And so that, we, that was a regular past and I had no idea it was wrong. <laughs> uh, one of the things I used to do, I learned to smoke in the children's home. We used to walk around the local town and we used to pick up the stub ends that people had thrown away and we would smoke those. Again, I had no idea of the rights and wrongs of that. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine doing that in a COVID situation, can you? No. Uh, so, so that's pretty much what happened for some time until eventually my two youngest siblings, the one-year-old and the three-year-old, were fostered by a family. Obviously, when people are fostering that that the preference is younger children so they went away to a beautiful family and i know that worked really well for them we were there a bit longer me and my next one down because we're a bit older but eventually we had a home too and i don't i think we were only there for a few months it felt like a long time and so that was my first home and Mm -hmm. things um what i found with foster care in those days at least 
they're, they're always short term. So we weren't there for long, new school, new home, and then we moved again. And then another school, another home, and then we moved again. And then we moved again. Uh, and then on around 10 now, and we, got, we had one for about a year. So that was much longer. And they were lovely. They were really, really nice couple. And they treated us like their own children. And uh, so that one stuck in my mind. I had my first bike when I was there. And I still remember being driven to this location to pick it up. And then I had to ride back on my first little bike. I've still got a picture of that. That was lovely. We had a, my first dog as a family. We, we got this little uh, black bull terrier. Uh, but sadly, we lost him. And I still recall when I was 10, 11, we used to walk around the fields calling out his names for, for days and days afterwards. He never came back. Mm. Uh, oh, I, I, I got some. Uh, that was a lovely family, but they were very strict. Well, I don't think they were particularly very strict. They were just good parents because um, I, I'm, I did something I'm really embarrassed about. And uh, I obviously don't do that anymore. But uh, I began stealing from my, from my foster parents. And I would regularly, you know, take money from my foster mom's purse. And then uh, on the way to school, we'd always stopped off at the corner shop to get some treats for school. And we'd only ever have 10 or 20 pence. So pence make up pounds in the UK. They're the equivalent of cents here. Mm -hmm. And so 10, 20 pence. For 10 pence, you could get a 10 pence mix. That's like between 10 and 20 sweets all mixed up in, in random. Okay. And so because I was stealing money... I was getting like one, two pound mixes. You can imagine that was a lot of sweets. Yeah. <laughs> one, day, one day, my foster mom, she must have been onto me, uh, <laughs> came behind me. And when she saw me buy a lot, a lot of sweets, she'd cotton on what I was doing. And she warned me I was going to get it that night. Oh, I had a dreadful day at school. Yeah. And that night, <laughs> I had the belt. <laughs> right. You got, yeah. So you learned your lesson. Yeah, but look, it gets to be funny. I don't know if I should be sharing this. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. You can always edit this if it's, if it's not good. Good. But <laughs> I mean, my stealing, oh, my no. stealing went from from one pound, two pound, to right at the end that that day I got caught fifty pound. Now fifty pound in the eighties would be equivalent to like five hundred dollars. I'd say now, Aussie, or, or two or three hundred dollars. That was a lot of money. And so I stole this fifty-pound note. Yeah. Uh, and then when I, I got caught that day, spending some smaller change, and I th and I panicked. I thought, what am I going to do if I get caught with this fifty-pound note? I'm going to be even bigger trouble. Mm -hmm. So, so you never guess what I did. You ate it. <laughs> the kids don't. <laughs> you ate it. Would not get close. Oh. The kids don't do this at home. Okay, I flushed it down the toilet. Oh. oh, okay. Not what I was expecting. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I mean, there's a lot of money to flush them toilets. Well, anyway, that evening, after I had the belt, they knew the £50 had gone, obviously. There's a lot of money to lose out of your purse. And so so when, when they wanted to know what I'd done with it, well, I couldn't tell them that I flushed it down the toilet. <laughs> I mean, that would have been even worse. So I said to we were living in a block of flats, like there's five or six story high mm -hmm. and there was a bin chute. You used to put all your waste, the rubbish down this chute and you used to go down and be captured in a, in a large bin at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, I'd put it down the chute. So you never guess what my foster dad oh, did. Oh, no. He's... Yeah. 
He went down, he climbed into the thing, and he was emptying all this. <laughs> oh, no. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting there watching him thinking, it's not even in there. Wow, confession time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but you know, when I saw them at an older age, I did tell them about it. Okay. Oh, my God, you're <laughs> you, right. You confess. <laughs> <laughs> so how many families did you end up uh, moving from family to family uh, in those? I think, you know, Matt, uh, it must have been five or six. I was there for about a year, and then I went to my long-term one from about 12 till I was 16. That was my last foster home. I was with a, a Catholic family, and I was there for a long time, and uh, four years. That started out well, but just uh, the relationship deteriorated and particularly related to my faith story. So at the age of 11, 12, when I went there, um, they, were they, were, they weren't practicing Catholics, all except every Friday we would have fish and chips. <laughs> that was, that was the, uh, the closest I got to get any form of Catholicism. Uh, mm -hmm. But the lady encouraged me, my, my foster mum, encouraged me to pray. And so, for, so from the age of eight, to the age of 11, the last three years, I had had no religious involvement, input, activity. Mm -hmm. uh, I left my family and I was in a secular environment and everything just went. And so this was the first time anyone mentioned religion to me in three years. And so naturally I, I did, I took it up on it. And in a quite a passionate way, every single evening without fail, I'd never miss, I'd fear missing, I would pray. Uh, when I was in bed. Uh, and I would pray because I was confused and I was seeking God in my own blindness and naivety. And I think one thing I, I realize now, and not everyone out there would necessarily know this, but we're all blind when it comes to finding, seeking God. We don't have a clue. Mm. It's why the Bible is such an incredible book because it's God stepping into our world and reaching out to us and giving us instruction on how we can find him and connect to him. But I obviously didn't have an access to a Bible uh, and my foster parents didn't really communicate much other than to pray. So I prayed to Allah, to Mary, to the term God, to Jesus, anybody I could think of. I, 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 and I always make sure when I was praying, I never missed anybody's name because I, I, I was nervous I'd make one of them jealous. So uh, that's how my seeking of God began. Right. Well, we will come back and explore this story further here on Life Pass with Matt and Sarah chatting with Montaz. In Australia, juvenile arthritis affects 1 in 1,000 children. It's a silent yet common condition. Kids Arthritis is here to help support these children and their families. To help them, go to kidsarthritis.org. This has been a Raw Cut community service announcement. This is Life Burst with Matt, Sarah and Montez who's sharing with us today. And Montez, you, uh, you're at the point as a child in your last foster family and you were, you were praying. You'd learnt to pray, but you were praying to whoever or whatever would listen. Where did that take you from there? So, yeah, that began, I think I was around 11, 11 to 12. And I did that uh, with real passion. Each night, uh, I don't know where he was going, but 
it gave me some sense of connecting with the divine. Uh, I had this innate sense that the God is there, that there is God. I, I've, I've, in my journey, I've, there's never been a time where I can recall when I doubted the existence of God. So it was perfectly normal that I was trying to connect with him. Um, that was in addition to being given a Gideon's New Testament, a red Gideon's New Testament at school when I was 11. So about the same time. So Are they those see, small little red Bibles like this? Yes. Yeah. Yes, they the, the New Testament and Psalms. Mm -hmm. and, and so these two things were almost alongside each other. So I could just see how God was working because, because whereas most of my friends just took them and chucked them, I used to read my, and I used to sit and I used to read those words, the gospel words. And do you know, I can still recall, they were just, just, it was like a blank. I couldn't comprehend what I was reading. It made no sense to me. But I was drawn to those words. And I, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful uh, to the Gideons for what they do because that Bible uh, had an impact on me. I read it. I kept it. I looked after it. Alongside that too, I used to watch back in the UK then, they had a, a, a documentary film series called Jesus of Nazareth that used to come on every Easter in several parts. It was called Comprehensive, Robert Powell, uh, the, the Jesus actor in that. And I used to watch that and that was making an impression on me. And I really got into who Jesus was, but I was really confused by the fact that when he was on the cross, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't couldn't get down. And I was expecting, look, I was used to watching the, the hero movies when at the end of the movie, the hero of the movie does something spectacular. Well, I just was assuming that Jesus would come down from the cross. After all, he could heal people. He could raise the dead. Uh, he had this great following. He could walk on water. He fed people with, with five loaves and two fish. He's obviously a, an extraordinary person. I believed he was God as I was watching, watching him. So... It just didn't make any sense to me that Jesus wasn't able to come off the cross and he actually was crucified. He died. I don't think in those days when I used to watch it, I understood the resurrection at the end. Maybe maybe I just switched off by then, I don't know, but I hadn't quite understood anything about the resurrection. But as far as I, I could see, Jesus had been killed and I was, I was in confusion. So all that went on for a bit longer. I was speaking regularly with my best friend from school who lived over the road, who incidentally is a minister of a church in the UK at the moment. Uh, so we both went into the ministry. Uh, so we used to talk about God and our search for him. Uh, look, it's a bizarre thing. You, you don't imagine teenagers talking about their search for God, but it's what we did. And what type of so things did you do? I, I know that there are some stories here. What type of yeah, things did you I do? I, I, I have a recollection. We used to run together. and I don't know, we should just talk about the fact that we were interested in God. We'd like to know more about him. But when we did school trips, we went to a school trip once to a church. And uh, I, when nobody was looking, Sarah, we did the school trip because I was embarrassed in front of my friends. When no one was looking, I knelt down on the prayer mats and said a prayer to Jesus, but looking at the stained glass windows. Hmm. So... God was working there. Can you see that? Mm. Uh, something outside of myself. Uh, I think I understand that now today, that that earning I had for God, that desire, wasn't something that big, that was self-birthed, uh, self if you like. God was doing that. I understand that now. He put that desire there. And, and he was responding to it in, in placing me in just the right places. In RE, we had RE in, in British schools, religious education. They still have that there today. 
Uh, I used to remember learning Bible stories in RE. Uh, and I was I was getting something from that. So I could just see God developing this scene. Eventually went on to, I uh, was just over 15, uh, seeking God. I was, by the one other thing, uh, we were attending our foster parents to send us to the Friday club of a local church, a Pentecostal church that believed the gospel. And I used to love going there. And here's, here's one thing for any kids workers. The reason I used to love going there wasn't for the Bible teaching, sorry. It was for the sweets. I'm getting this. Sweets. <laughs> There's a theme. Sweet. There's a theme in your life, Montaz. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sweets work, okay, a way to my heart, okay? Yeah. Anyhow, that only continued for a small season. So yeah, at 15, my best friend, I was in the air cadets because my big passion at school was to be a Top Gun pilot. Yeah. It, it was the 80s, and the Top Gun movie had come out, you know, Tom Cruise, incidentally, Top Gun 2 is coming out soon. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> um, and I had this passion. I was going to fly fast jets, the F-14, for the U.S. Navy. I wrote to the U.S. Embassy in London. I had everything, all the documentation, everything I had to do. And I had a little plan. I was going to finish my... A-levels, I was going to emigrate to Australia, I was going to do a degree, not Australia, America, sorry, do a degree and then join the Naval Academy and fly F-14 Tomcats and become Top Gun mm. in California. And it all mapped out. Uh, and so I was in the Air Cadets as a, as a part of that, which is the, 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 the introduction for teenagers to the Royal Air Force. Mm -hmm. and, and it was great because they let you fly. Seriously, they let you fly aircraft that take you over in a two-seater and then let you take control of the stick it was amazing so i did that for several years but i gave up when i was 15 16 because i don't know i'm not sure why i did my friend was in there still and he came to me one day i remember it was monday morning and he said to me montez you never guess where i went last night I obviously didn't know because i went to church the ceo the commanding officer of the air cadets was a Christian, was attending this this church. It was a, an Elim Pentecostal church. And he was getting all the cadets who wanted to curry favour with him <laughs> to go to church. Right, I'm seeing where this yeah, is going. <laughs> yeah, as an evangelistic outreach. All these cadets, about 10 of us, they were, they were going. I mean, so my friend told me about this. And he said to me, Montaz, when I was on that service, the pastor, the, the man in the front, the speaker, preached a sermon and he said as he was preaching something was happening inside of me he says i felt stirred and moved and emotional because and i felt challenged about my life and he says this man invited people to give their lives to jesus at, at the end of the service and he says i just went forward and i went into his office because the issue was when i got into his office and he put out a prayer before me and the prayer went something like this lord jesus christ i believe in you i believe you are god God's Son. I believe you come into our world to give your life for us. I believe that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That's how it went. I remember, I remember the words. And mm. I think it continued, you, yeah. know, you know, I surrender my life to you. I ask you into my heart and life and I ask you to be my Lord and Master. And my friend Martin said, when he was presented with that prayer, there was a conflict in his heart and his soul. He wanted to do this and become a Christian because he realized that this is what he'd been searching for. This is what he needed. This is real. He was convinced, 
that God was real because he felt him working in his heart in that service. But he goes, the, the, the other part of, of himself, his will, if you like, was resisting this line in the prayer that said something like, I surrender my life and will to you. And he says he couldn't do it. Mm. Couldn't bring himself around to doing it. That's big. That That is a big decision that somebody has to make. Like, they're really big, strong words that, yeah, he, he had to say. And we're going to find out after the break if he said them or not here on Life First with Matt and Sarah chatting with Montaz. Raw Cut is also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter with the handle RawCutAU. This is Life Bursts with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting with Montaz today and we've got to this final question uh, that uh, your friend was being asked and something he was wrestling with. What was it? Take us back. And what did he answer and how did he answer it? Sure. So he was asked to pray the lines, Lord, I surrender my life and will to you. And he just couldn't do that. He come and told me about this next day. And I was thinking, wow, you mean someone can actually become a Christian? I had no idea, you see. I had no oh, idea okay. that you could choose, that it was a choice that we have to become a Christian, a friend of God, in relationship with God, at peace with God. And I've been searching for this, although I didn't know quite what I was searching for. I just knew I was searching for something. So when mm-hmm. he told me about this on Monday morning, the day after, I was like, wow. Is there another service? When's the next service? Because I'm going to go, and when he, when he asks, I'm going to go forward and I'm going to say the prayer. I was already determined I was going to do it because this is what I wanted. I just knew this is what I was looking for. I went along to the next meeting. It was a midweek meeting. We watched the Jesus film, which I'd seen before. I got to the end thinking, oh, no, what if he doesn't ask? I've, only, I've come to become a Christian. I mean, it's every pastor's dream, Matt, eh? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, so yeah, and so what he did, he issued an altar call. This is what we call it in church circles. I went forward, went into his office. I said the prayer. I was ready for that. And he, he assured me that if I'd meant that, and if I'd prayed it wholeheartedly, then I'd become a Christian. That Jesus had come into my heart, had forgiven me my sins, was my Lord, and he was going to walk with me for the rest of my life right into eternity. And what happened? And that's when my Christian journey began. Pardon? What happened? You, you obviously said it. Did something happen? Did you? Yeah, so yeah. for me, and here's the big anticlimax, if you like, nothing happened. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> and you know, Aww. no, there, uh, there wasn't any flashing lights or anything or any sense of sensation. Incidentally, my friend set, was able to commit his life to God and ask God into his heart a few weeks later. Like I say, he's in, he's in the ministry now as a pastor also. No, there wasn't nothing. I just went on. But mm. I began to attend the church regularly. And soon I was getting baptized in a few weeks. And I remember at my baptism, I, I said something to the effect of, I think this is going to be a crunch part of my conversion, that, I, that, that this was going to be a definitive moment. And it was after I came out of the waters of baptism, I, I did. I did sense a change in my life and heart at that moment. Actually, uh, a, a sense of being a new person, uh, and I think it really impacted me. Impacted me that evening when I was baptized, just three months after my initial prayer of inviting Jesus into my heart. But it was on that night 
that I sensed that not only did I sense I was a new person, and I think God was definitely real to me at that moment. Uh, I sometimes wonder if that was the true moment of my conversion. Uh, but I sensed that evening that God wanted me to use my life, not to fly jets, because remember that was my passion, mm -hmm. to be a fighter jet pilot. But I just felt that God wanted me to use my life to preach and to tell other people about him. And that's when I, at the age of 16, on the night of my baptism, had this sense of call, if you like, a call to be a pastor, preacher of the gospel. So what did everybody outside of yourself with all this excitement going on, and you went back and you told people, hey, I'm going to do this instead of being like the guy on Top Gun. <laughs> what did they say? Oh, yeah, it didn't go down well. <laughs> my, when I said to my headmaster, the principal of my school, I was doing A-levels, which is the, the, the what you do between 16 and 18 to prepare for uni. Mm -hmm. I dropped out. I, I pulled out. I said, I'm leaving school because I don't need education. I'm going to be a preacher. <laughs> right. And is that <laughs> the case? Imagine. <laughs> it's not. You can imagine that didn't go down well with yeah, Mr. No. Black, the scary principal. So I dropped out of school. My foster parents were very unhappy with how much time I was now spending at church. In fact, I had to run away when I was 16 and a half because my life just became very difficult in that environment. When I was so involved in church, it just didn't go down well. Yeah. I had to run away at 1.30 uh, one evening yeah. for my own safety, I felt. Uh, I ran to my youth leader's home. He, he, he put me up for a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got myself just a job just to get life experience. My, yeah. church, where, my church was quite enthusiastic. They were encouraging me. To mm -hmm. pursue this call and so my pastor said to me well if you if god called you to be a pastor go and save some people by saying it's a term really just term just means convert people to the faith and so my friend and i at the age of 16 and a half began an open air that's working outside uh, mission so we used to go into the local town every saturday and we used to preach about jesus we didn't know how to preach what we used to do we used to watch well-known evangelists, they're people who preach about Jesus. Uh, we used to watch them on TV and we used to mimic them. We used to practice a church mimicking them. So some of my mannerisms are probably from those days. <laughs> um, and so we used to practice preaching in church. Then we used to go into the local town and we used to preach to the public. And that always didn't go down well, but we just did it. So how did you... How how did you end up here in Australia, knowing that we don't have much time left and we're just still like on your teenage life, but so how did I mean, you end up in Australia? So from that, okay, so that eventually led 15 years later for me to training a theology school, doing a degree on the Bible, preparing to be a pastor. I pastored two churches in the UK, one in Kent, one in North East Wales, and we came over uh, to, the, to Australia a few years back uh, to spend some time on the east coast and we left australia with a sense of call to serve the church here it just just had this overwhelming sense that god wanted us to be here for me to pass the churches in australia so when we went back to the uk uh, after our time on the east coast i began to communicate with churches who were looking for a pastor and uh, we're talking to churches all over Australia, as it so happened, uh, in each state, including in the middle of Australia, in Kananara, north, up north, in the middle of nowhere. And we almost ended up there, in a church there. But uh, eventually, by God's grace, we were called by Living Word Bible Church. 
to be uh, to come here and for me to be their pastor and that began uh, in may 2018. all right uh, what wow. is what a story. Well, yeah. Montez, you've, uh, from where you've come from, what you've been through, it's uh, such an incredible journey. And uh, to hear your, uh, your journey of, of life and of faith through that is, uh, it's been really encouraging. It really is. Mm. As you... It's been a pleasure talking to you, Matt and Sarah. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, looking back at all of that that you've experienced and all that uh, that you've you've shared, uh, if you could have one piece of advice that you'd offer our listeners and viewers today, what would that be? Oh, wow. That's a big one. Uh, I guess it's, it's what I did is to seek God, uh, is, is to make a pursuit of all the pursuits in life we can have, if I can leave one word, one thought in listeners' minds, is to seek God. Find Him. Look for Him. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him. Pray. And the best place to seek God is to find a church that preaches about Jesus. Go. And open your heart to God, because here's, here's what I learned. God is seeking us. Those Silent voices that we hear that knock on our hearts that we experience, the need of something bigger, uh, the desire to connect with the divine. They're all things that God is doing in our hearts because he's actually drawing us to him. And so I just encourage listeners to seek God, to pursue him, to find him. And I know your journey will lead you to Jesus and to peace with him mm. and to a life where God is walking with you through every episode. Well, thank you, Montaz, for sharing your passion and excitement of life and your journey and story with us today. We really appreciate it. This has been Life First. You can catch us on podcasts, on uh, community TV and radio, wherever you get your podcasts from and all over those places. It would be great you could join us. So please join us again for more stories next week. Life Bursts is hosted by Matthew Karat and Sarah Freeman, with production by Reese Jarrett and Kay Hoshra Ozadigan. For more episodes of Life Bursts, go to rawcut.com.au. This is a Rawcut production.